Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jamie Metzl. He's a futurist, geopolitical expert, and founder and chair of the global social movement One Shared World. The war between East and West is unfolding in front of our eyes, from Chinese land grabs in the South China Sea to bugged electronics and squeezed trade sanctions. Tensions seem to be rising below the surface. Expect to learn what China's anti-US propaganda looks like, why tennis star Peng Shui's disappearance is so disturbing, why the CCP has stopped children from playing computer games for more than three hours per week, how much the civil discontent in the West is Chinese-created, Jamie's predictions for the next few decades, and much more. China, to me, is the same as the growing inequality in the sex and the dating market. It's something that everyone kind of knows about in the back of their heads, but no one really has an idea about how to fix it. And if it's left unchecked going forward, it's going to cause huge problems. So I really appreciated Jamie coming on to explain. It's so in-depth. You need to understand so much about the geopolitical landscape and what's happening in China and what their actual goals are and what their stated goals are. It's pretty scary stuff, but something that we all need to be a little bit better educated about. So I hope that today helps. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout all right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 
24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Jamie Metzl. Jamie Metzl, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you here, man. So you were one of the first guys to really get onto the Lab Leak story. Where are we at with that now, 18 months hence? Yeah, so I'll start in the beginning. It was late January of last year. Like everybody else, I was deeply concerned about this emerging pandemic and thinking, well, where does this come from? And like most people, I thought, well, it's Sounds pretty similar to the last SARS uh, outbreak, which we knew happened, uh, and it came from nature through markets. But then in late January of last year, I saw um, a report in The Lancet, which showed that more than a third of the uh, earliest people being infected um, had no contact with that now infamous uh, seafood market in, uh, in Wuhan. Um, and then I, I kind of have, I have two perspectives, one as a person who's deeply immersed in the world of science and another as the other part of my life, deeply immersed in Asia and China and, and geopolitics. And so something just didn't feel right when the Chinese government um, kept talking about a, a market origin um, when it was pretty clear to me that the evidence suggested otherwise. And then I just started digging. I really, I dove in. And the more I learned, uh, the more questions were raised about the possibility of, of a lab incident origin. And it's still not 100% proven that that's where this pandemic um, comes from. Um, but the circumstantial evidence is just incredibly strong. And everything we learn, at least it seems to me, that it's, that it's getting stronger. So I know we'll, we'll dig into the details of this, but uh, where we are now uh, is, in my mind, there's a very strong but still circumstantial case suggesting a very likely uh, but not certain lab incident origin of the uh, pandemic. Uh, China in, is really just outrageously preventing any kind of uh, investigation into the origins of the pandemic. They're still engaged in just a massive and outrageous cover-up involving destroying samples, hiding records, imprisoning people in China for asking questions. They have a gag order preventing Chinese scientists from saying or writing anything about pandemic origins without prior uh, government approval. Um, there are some efforts to dig deeper, but we need, we need a lot more. Is that not likely to be potentially the most evidence that we get? The purely coincidental, anecdotal, this is what it seems, because if the Chinese government continues to stonewall as effectively as it is at the moment, then 
maybe we're never actually going to find out anything that's concrete. It's all just going to be best case scenarios. Well, that, that could be. That's one possibility. But we also have to think of how much we, and by we, I, I mean a bunch of we's. There's certainly our group. It's called the, quote unquote, the Paris Group, a group of about two dozen experts uh, around the world who've been collaborating on this issue since uh, last year. Uh, there's a, another group, and, and there's some overlap between our, our two groups called Drastic, <clears throat> which is a group of, they're called internet sleuths, but they're, they're more than that, um, who've been digging and and we have uncovered, and this community um, uh, more broadly has uncovered a lot of highly highly relevant information that has told us a lot about this this story. So yes, it would be better if China had complete transparency. But there's a lot that we can do, and most people <clears throat> most people will be surprised that there's still no comprehensive international investigation into the origins of the pandemic. And what that means is if you're somebody in China, maybe a scientist who has highly relevant information, I'm sure you're scared for your life uh, or, uh, right now, um, there's, and you wanted to share that information, there's not even an address. There's, there are no secure whistleblower uh, uh, provisions. So there's much more that we can do. Will it work? Will it get us to 100% certainty? Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we can't say it won't before we even try. Why is there no investigation? <clears throat> It's been a political process, um, and the main reason is that China has blocked it. Uh, last year, in, in early 2020, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for a full investigation. Um, after he did that, the Chinese government punished Australia by imposing trade sanctions to try to deliver the message uh, that anybody who dares to ask questions will be punished. Um, he and, and the Australians brought that idea to the World Health Assembly, which is the governing board overseeing the World Health Organization, in May of last year. And there was a jujitsu move by the, the Chinese, and the Europeans played a role in this as well. And so this idea for a full investigation uh, uh, into the origins of the pandemic morphed into a Chinese-supported resolution, uh, which mandated essentially a Chinese-controlled joint international Chinese study, not into the origins uh, of the uh, pandemic, but into the single hypothesis of a natural origin not associated with a lab incident. So that uh, led to the just the farce uh, of this international joint study group um, that then the international members uh, went to Wuhan in, in January of 20, uh, 2021 this year. Uh, in early February, they held just a farcical press conference um, where in Wuhan, where they basically uh, repeated Chinese propaganda lines. It comes from nature. Maybe it comes from frozen food, they said, which was preposterous. And they were just later admitted they were just doing that as a favor to the Chinese. And then um, the lead spokesman for this international uh, expert team, independent expert team, uh, he said, we've concluded that a lab incident origin is extremely unlikely and doesn't merit further investigation. And it later turned out he admitted he was lying. That wasn't what he thought. He was just doing, a, he had done a backroom horse trading deal with the Chinese who didn't want a lab incident mentioned at all. And so he said, all right, well, I'll say it's extremely unlikely. All say uh, it shouldn't be investigated, but is it okay if we just mention a lab incident? And as I understand, um, that person is actually uh, under investigation by the WHO for doing this kind of deal. I was going to say, it's so crazy that there is no 
uh, further level of authority that can look to try and impose on this particular group. When you talk about an entire global event, each individual nation state kind of looks after itself, but we don't, there's no, uh, what was that, Team America? There's no yeah. one that's like the global police that's flying yeah. around and trying to enforce this stuff. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not advocating for a new world order or, a, you know, one nation state across the entire world, but we are seeing here that there is a, a lack of recourse when it's nation state versus nation state because the only thing that you have to play with are like trade sanctions and threats of war and all sorts of stuff right. like that, which seems kind of primitive. Yeah, <clears throat> that's 100% right and, and really accurate. And so um, the leadership of the World Health Organization, they're now trying to do as, as much as they can. Uh, they have created a group called SAGO, the Scientific Advisory Group, uh, for investigating the origins of novel pathogens. And that was kind of a, a really bold move by Dr. Tedros and the WHO leadership uh, to supersede the mandate um, that had been given to them by the, the World Health Assembly, who is basically their bosses of the, of the states. And so that's happening now. But China has essentially condemned uh, the, Dr. Tedros and efforts to, to, and what he's called for, a full audit of Wuhan labs and access to the raw data. Uh, and China has clearly said that they're not going to allow that. And, and, and their participation in a lot of these international organizations isn't designed to strengthen the organizations, but to blunt and and block them. And that's that's really, um, uh, really concerning. Uh, right now, as we speak, uh, the there's a special session of the World Health Assembly uh, that is meeting to negotiate what, what will likely take many years, uh, which is a new pandemic treaty, uh, because it's just 100% clear that the institutions and structures that we have in place right now for responding to this kind of crisis are massively insufficient. But ironically, after the first SARS uh, in, the, in 2003, 2004, where China had a similar kind of cover-up in the early stages, um, we had the same meeting, said we need to have stronger structures. We built them through the international health um, regulations, and then it didn't make a difference. As a matter of fact, China's behavior this time is even worse. It's even more atrocious. And that leads to your broader question about just how the world is, is organized. And um, as you know, I'm the founder of an organization called One Shared World. And what we're trying to do is to address exactly what you said. There's a mismatch between the nature of the biggest problems that we face, which are global and common, and the absence um, of sufficient structures for addressing that entire category of problems, and that's pandemics, climate change, proliferating nuclear weapons, and, and lots of, uh, of other things. Uh, and that's why uh, China, in the name of national sovereignty, is able to do all these, these things that, that certainly I find uh, despicable, not just covering up the origins of the pandemic, uh, but also committing mass human rights abuses in, in Xinjiang and uh, Tibet, and illegally seizing territory in the South China Sea and along the border with India uh, and, and elsewhere. <clears throat> and that's why uh, we re really need to think deeply about how do we build a safer structure for, uh, for the world. And if we don't do it, unfortunately, our world's going to become a much more, a much more dangerous place. So that's why uh, we need to start moving in that direction. And it's not just about what states can do. Everybody has a role.
Yeah, there definitely needs to be more oversight. That's a really interesting way to actually look at concluding what's happened with the lab leak theory. Whether it was zoonotic at a wet market, whether it was a lab leak, or whether it was something else, China is covering up the origin of the virus. It doesn't matter uh-huh. what yeah. side of this debate you fall on. Everybody can accept the fact that China, China isn't being transparent with the single biggest global health problem that we've had in the modern era. And that's... Yeah. That blows my mind. There's no recourse for us to try and get those people back. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's really terrible. And what China will say and does say about issues of Xinjiang and, and Tibet and others is, well, uh, the human rights of Chinese people, um, that's China's own business. Uh, the rest of the world isn't a, a stakeholder. Um, but the rest of the world is a stakeholder. The fact that the whistleblowers weren't able to speak out in the earliest days following the outbreak, whatever the origin of, of the outbreak. The, the fact that people, Chinese people who are asking questions are in prison. Uh, one of them, Zhang Zhan, is actually near death in, in prison. That's not just a Chinese issue. I mean, uh, economists estimates that the number of total dead is um, uh, uh, due to COVID is between 15 and 16 million. I would venture to say that a very, regardless of the of the origin, a very significant percentage of those deaths are attributable um, to the pathologies of the Chinese state and to this cover-up. So what's been some of the new realizations that have come out? Has there been any data that's arrived recently, updates with regards to the origin of COVID? Oh, huge. And and a lot has, has come out. And first, let me just lay on, on the table the two cases, the people who believe this has a natural origin, they will argue um, that that's how most uh, pandemics have happened in the past. Um, and uh, nature is, is very creative. And so we just can't say what, what will or will not show up. The counter argument, which is certainly what I uh, believe is far more likely, um, is that we have an outbreak of a um, of a bat with a horseshoe uh, with a, I'm sorry of a virus with a horseshoe bat uh, backbone? It happens not where the horseshoe bats are, but more than a thousand miles away, where they don't have this kind of horseshoe bats, but they have the uh, the world's a, a China's first and largest uh, highest level uh, virology institute, high containment lab. Um, with the world's largest collection of bat coronaviruses where they were doing research, not even at the highest level, at BSL-3 and 2 levels, uh, designed uh, to make these scary viruses even scarier. We'll leave the word gain of function aside for a moment. Uh, And then uh, this uh, virus shows up, and on day one, it's uh, with no apparent so far evolutionary history, it's ready uh, to uh, easily pass uh, from human uh, human to human, um, and then they have the whole the whole cover up. Since the earliest days of the outbreak, we've had a lot more information. Uh, people in Drastic uncovered uh, information that was being hidden by the Chinese about a uh, copper mine in, in Yunnan in southern China. In 2012, six miners were sent down to clean out uh, bat guano, bat manure. All of them got sick with what uh, look today very much like SARS, like COVID-19 symptoms. Um, half of them died. Their blood samples were taken to the Wuhan Institute of, uh, of Virology and elsewhere. Uh, multiple sampling trips um, were sent to this, this same mine. Um, and in those sampling trips, 
uh, the, a number of uh, many different viruses were collected, including um, one that is among the most genetically similar to SARS-CoV-2. And because there's a lot of recombination in bat viruses, just have to assume um, that similarity breeds similarity. So it's quite likely that that there are additional uh, similar viruses in the in the collection. Uh, then the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology's uh, viral database with um, 22,000 samples vanished. It first went offline and then vanished in late 2019. And that was also uh, dug up. Uh, then we got, had access to the, this organization, EcoHealth Alliance, um, which was a funding partner to Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, and they um, were engaged in all sorts of, of activities that certainly from the perspective of now seem, uh, seem questionable. Then, I could just go on forever, but I won't. Uh, then we just uh, found out through a leak, and a leak that I think was a deliberate leak from the U.S. Defense Department that said, hey, we did the right thing, um, but that in March of 2018, so a year and a half before uh, the outbreak, uh, this organization, EcoHealth Alliance, along with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, applied for $14 million of DARPA funding. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to genetically engineer a furin cleavage site, which is part of the spike protein, basically how these viruses are able to best infect human cells, a furin cleavage site into uh, the backbone of a SARS-like virus. And so the Wuhan Institute of Virology was going to collect the viruses, and they did collect viruses from Laos, Cambodia, southern China, and elsewhere. And this, lab, this work was supposed to be done at the University of North Carolina in the, the lab of Ralph Barrick. Uh, DARPA correctly um, rejected that uh, proposal. But there's a real question is, did the Chinese go forward anyway? I think it's actually quite likely. And that's basically in, in most fields of advanced science. That's what the Chinese are doing. They'll partner with international experts to learn as much as they need to learn. And then they'll just push forward doing that thing in China. That's why the first CRISPR babies were born in China and lots of and lots of other things. So we're we're really learning a lot. And the more we learn, uh, the more this looks like um, it's very likely a lab incident origin. And, and the reason why uh, we have this pandemic, it's the origin, probably, but not conclusively a lab incident origin. And then, as we said, regardless of the origin, a criminal cover-up um, was what exacerbated this crisis and brought it to scale. Would you say that COVID's helped China overall? Have they suffered more than other countries? How does that work out? Yeah, so I think relatively, uh, China's better off. China's relative power is stronger now. China is relatively stronger now than it was in the beginning. That doesn't mean it's been an enjoyable experience for them by, uh, by any means. Um, but to China's credit, um, they've managed the spread um, of the virus inside of, of China, certainly more than, than has any other big country. Some people su uh, suggest that that raises the question of, could this have been deliberate? I don't think it is. I mean, these are really smart people. It's like the dumbest thing ever would be to say, all right, we're going to release a dangerous, highly infectious um, pathogen in our, you know, one of our big cities um, with the goal of infecting our city first and then the rest of the world, but we'll do a better job of, of locking. I don't think that's, that's very likely. 
Uh, but I do think uh, most likely there was some kind of accident followed by a criminal cover-up. Yeah, that crosses the line from uh, aggressive and sometimes negligent to malicious and mostly psychotic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, which... Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, and so you you start out at uh, negligent. I mean, certainly ambitious and and negligent, um, but then you get to the criminal cover up, um, and that's that's the thing. And the cover up is malicious because lots of countries uh, make mistakes. Uh, the United States. I mean, we had Union Carbide. We had Three Mile Island. We had the accidental bombing of the. Beijing embassy in, in, in Belgrade. Uh, recently, there was a, a, a terrible, a seemingly accidental uh, killing of, uh, of a family in, in Afghanistan. There was the whole Afghanistan debacle. Lots of countries make mistakes. I'm not pinpointing China as the only country to make a mistake or as the only country to ever have a cover-up. But I, what I am saying, in this case, um, it's, it's, it, the consequences are pretty awful. So... Taking a broader view, what's China's overall goal at the moment for the nation? What do they want? Well, well I'll just put it in their terms. I mean, what the, the Chinese strategic documents have said is they're looking to have global leadership uh, by the year 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the, uh, of the Chinese state, the, the Chinese uh, revolution. What's, glo and what's global leadership and where did they say this? So right now, uh, historically, uh, China has seen itself as the Middle Kingdom. It's it's certainly a <clears throat> or, or one maybe the great civilization of its region, and they had a relationship with the countries around it that was based on that understanding, which is very very different from the principles of the post-war international order that were established by the United States and the UK and our allies in the aftermath of the uh, of the Second World War. And so China would like to have that freedom of maneuver. China sees uh, the United States, um, I think, as a country that's trying to keep China down and sees that post-war liberal international order as something that is just a veiled threat. It, it's not something designed for the common good, but something designed to keep others down and, and as they see it, keep uh, the United States um, in, a, in a role of, uh, of primacy, and they want to get out of that. And part of getting out of that, at least in my view, is uh, deeply undermining this system, the alliance system um, that uh, emboldens uh, countries uh, like uh, Japan and Korea and Australia to stand up to, uh, to China. That doesn't necessarily mean that China wants to militarily take over the world. China says they never take over um, other entities, but that's just a bald-faced lie because you just have to have a, just a different view of, like if, you, if, if I were to say America is the whole world, then America would never invade any other country because I had just declared that all other countries are America. If China just says the entire South China Sea is China, then seizing territory in the South China Sea isn't aggression, it's just this is this is ours. So they they use it's the, kind it's of, the big brother little brother stop hitting yourself thing all yeah. over again, isn't it? Stop hitting yourself. So, well, it's something like that. But the thing is, for them, um, yeah, I mean, for them, they're just making declarations. I mean, that that's why uh, for China managing the information space is so important because the idea is well, just just declare some big crazy thing. 
and then start defending that crazy thing. And then you act according to that principle. And then people will say, hey, you're wrong. And you say, oh, no, no, um, we, we have a claim to the entire South China Sea. So this is just a, just a dispute. This isn't aggression. We're not seizing territory. We're not attacking India. Um, we're just um, you know, part of this uh, of this dispute um, where we haven't um, in Xinjiang and, and, and Tibet, uh, Taiwan, uh, China has uh, the, 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 the government on mainland China uh, has only controlled Taiwan for four years since 1895. Um, and yet that claim, there are lots of other, uh, other countries that have a much stronger claim to other places that have let bygones be bygones. But again, China it asserts its reality uh, and then tries to defend um, the reality that it's, that it's created. What is, can you explain what China's doing in the South China Sea with its little islandettes and yeah, yeah. how it's expanding territory? Yes. Um, so um, a big vulnerability that China has is that the United States Navy um, is uh, still more advanced and stronger. And the South China Sea is one of the main thoroughfares for trade. It's, na it's natural resource uh, risk, uh, rich, not just fishing, but uh, oil. And it, it's critically important. China has made this just absurd, outlandish, and according to international law, illegal claim called the Nine Dash Line um, to essentially the entire South China Sea. And then what they did um, is they claimed these, uh, the essentially reefs in the middle of the South China Sea, seized them, and have built massive military installations uh, on those islands. And what they're doing, so the United States has aircraft carrier battle groups. And if you've ever seen them, they're just unbelievably awesome displays of power. Um, but if you have military installations right in the middle of the South China Sea, that's like a huge aircraft carrier in one of the most important places where you would have an aircraft carrier. And a, a, if you have a land base, you can really do a lot. And the United States could neutralize those bases in a war scenario. I mean, they're just sitting there, so you could you know, attack them in a war. But all, most of life, and hopefully all of life, happens outside of a war, uh, of a war scenario. So it's, again, it's the same thing. China declares an imaginary reality and then starts acting as if the imaginary reality is, is real. And then when people raise questions about it, attacks those, those people or those countries. Isn't there a rule to do with a, a particular radius around the islands? It's a 90-mile radius or something. So by China so, picking up these little reefs, they're slowly expanding that territory because they correct. all intersect. It's the convention of the law of the sea. And these little reefs, these little sunken um, natural structures don't have, I mean, one, the claims are totally illegal. Two, uh, even if they were legal, these reefs don't afford that kind of protection. But they take these reefs and then they're pouring cement and they're building structures on on top of them and in order to make these these claims. And, and what they're trying to do is just create realities on the ground um, that will transform the, the conversation, because now they have these military installations and, and they're, they're telling every every other country, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to are you going to force us? 
to leave. And, and China has built up its massive military. They're now investing hugely in hypersonic weapons, in nuclear weapons, in attack submarines. Um, and so it's not even clear uh, that if the United States were to challenge uh, those, those islands, at least at this stage, and there were some kind of military confrontation, it, it's not even clear who, uh, who would win. So what China's trying to do is just change the realities on the ground, regardless of the, uh, of the legalities, regardless of what it does to any concept of a rules-based international order, and then just say, well, that's, that's the reality, get used to it. They're fucking about with anchoring bias and uh, status quo bias and first mover advantage better than anyone that I've ever seen. As you say, yeah. by proclaiming a particular situation and then matching reality to that situation and then saying, what do you mean? This, this huge concrete building has always been here on this island. It's always been our territory. Um, I mean, it's not the most subtle of strategies, but it definitely seems like it's being effective and it's being rolled out. It's across everything, right? It's whether you're looking at controlling information, whether you're looking at the way that they are restricting dissident conversation. There's this new uh, rule around algorithms as well. They've just made mm -hmm. one of the most restrictive rules on algorithms ever. What What's happened there? Yeah, so my friend Matt Pottinger has an editorial in the New York Times uh, today on this. And basically, China has recognized, as many of us have, that data is the new oil of the, of the 21st century. And so with China, first, they have laws to capture uh, the data of their own citizens, making it illegal to export that data. Uh, but now they're having laws to try to capture uh, the, the data of all of companies that are operating inside of uh, of China. And so what China is doing is building these massive data sets of, uh, of everybody's information inside of China and outside. And there's lots of theft <clears throat> of, of records, including, I'm assuming, my records, because they hacked the, the White House um, Office of Personnel, which has all of my, my former security clearances and, and, and other things. And then there's no doubt um, that they're going to weaponize that information or certainly utilize to their advantage over, uh, over time. And so there's the data, there are the algorithms, and China is certainly playing for keeps. They have a might-makes-right mentality. That doesn't mean that, that that approach is necessarily going to win, but it certainly means that those of us um, in, in elsewhere in the world who don't want to live in that kind of, of sinocentric rule uh, world, a world organized around those values, we need to organize ourselves. We need to manifest the kind of, of values um, that we articulate. And when we look at what's happening here in the United States and what's happening in the UK and, and elsewhere, it doesn't really look like that. I mean, and so yes, we we can and should be critical of what China is doing, and we have to fight back. Uh, but one of the ways um, of fighting back has to be reinvesting in our own democracy, our own strength, our own uh, strategic thinking about how do we make ourselves stronger and uh, counter the, the challenges that we face um, globally. How much do you think that the civil discontent in the West at the moment is legitimate? And how much do you think is sowed by foreign actors like the Internet Research Agency in Russia yeah. or China? <clears throat> well, we have these debates, we have these divisions, and they are mostly indigenous. 
Um, but I think that the Chinese and, and the Russians, uh, and maybe a few others, but certainly the Chinese and the Russians, they are throwing lighter fluid into this existing fire. <laughs> and when you have these kind of critical turning points, um, like the, the election of, uh, of Donald Trump and, and, and certainly other experiences that we've experienced here in the United States uh, around racial tensions and gun rights and abortion, um, they're just throwing this lighter fluid in, into the fire and it's exacerbating things. And that's, that's, but there's a challenge because uh, having a healthy debate, even sometimes uncomfortable uh, debate, is essential. Uh, and we have these, these new vehicles uh, like Twitter um, that give a lot of people voice who haven't had previously voice at this kind of, of, of scale but at the same time, we need to protect ourselves against malicious interference and malicious disinformation campaigns um, sowed by uh, foreign uh, foreign government actors who are are wishing us ill, and it's it's really hard uh, hard uh, to do. And so we have to both fight those foreign actors, and I think we need to reinvest in building a culture of civility, a stronger culture of civility here in, in the United States. That doesn't mean that we can't have difference, uh, differences. We, we can, we should. It's natural for us to do them. Uh, but I think if we just get in this world where we're just breaking into these blocks and everybody is just flinging firebombs over their wall at, at, at the other guy, um, I just think that's, that's not going to be healthy for anyone. The problem is that the difference between um, indigenously created conflict based on something that genuinely needs to be fixed and foreign actor created <laughs> problems that manifests to look like something that was created internally, though they're essentially impossible for us to work out. And yeah. another thing that I've been thinking about, I've been, I'm in Texas, I've been here for a couple of weeks, and although the atmosphere here is beautiful, from watching uh, the U the US from the UK over the last couple of years, the difference in the sort of environment and the sort of climate that's been in the US for the last 18 months from what actually happened to the kind of environment that Russia or China would want the US to have if they were going to try and take this country down, it's, it's not that far away. Yeah. You think about loss of national pride, hatred of the flag, uh, increased divisions, uh, lack of understanding around what truth means, lack of agreement around what truth means, lack of trust in news media, lack of trust in government and political officials and all that sort of stuff. So to me, there's only two things that could be happening. One is that this is fundamentally being fueled by foreign actors and they're patting each other on the back and saying, well done. The second one is that they're maybe throwing a little bit of lighter fluid on the fire, but looking at each other and going, was this, was this us? Mm -hmm. No. And they're just clapping as America turns around and kicks the ball into its own goal over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I think the second is more likely, and you're right, it's, it's, it's hard to measure exactly what it is because there are a lot of things that are just changing in our, uh, in our societies. So I wouldn't, I mean, it would be absurd to say that everything that's happening, all these divisions, it's just China and Russia is making us do it. I mean, that would take away all of our agency and, and, all, of our, and all of our responsibility. So I think that we have to very aggressively counter what China and Russia are doing. And very conveniently, both of them are 
blocking uh, and protecting their own information spaces at home and public information spaces. Um, but again, we also need to reinvest in our own democracy. I think there are a lot of people who don't feel heard um, here, and we need to make sure that we have the, that we create forums and 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 people. You know, we all interact within structures. We're not, we don't exist in some kind of uh, a vacuum. And, and part of those structures are algorithmic. I mean, I, it's hard for me to measure this, uh, but I was telling this to, to somebody else uh, the other day. Um, so I have different parts of my life and certainly I focus you know, some energy, a decent energy on pandemic origins uh, and then part on thinking about the future of the genetics and biotech revolutions and part on one shared world and how do we think about building a, a better world for everybody. When I, when I tweet, things like uh, we need to dig into the origins of the pandemic, China's engaged in an, an illegal cover-up responsible for millions of unnecessary deaths, we have to demand a, a full investigation, blah, 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 that gets a lot of attention. If I tweet, um, we need to come together to build a safer world for everybody, it's like two people, no, my it's mother. Not as and, it's not as fun, it's not as exciting, yeah. yeah. And, and, but I, so, it, it could be that, that people are just seeing it and say, well, I don't care about building a safer world. Or it could be that the algorithm is, is somehow weighting uh, different things differently. And so I, I do think that we need to think about the structures in which our communications are happening because the structures have inherent biases. And it's not that these are intentional biases. It's just that these, these biases play out over time and then have big implications. Well, they're reflections of our mentality, right, and our psychology. The limbic hijack, the fact that if it bleeds, it leads, is something that catches our attention as opposed to some lovely, fluffy aphorism about one love. It's just mm -hmm. not going to grab people's attention in the same way. Another thing that I was looking at was anti-US propaganda. Have you done much research into this from China? Well, certainly there's a lot of anti-U.S. propaganda. I can't say I've done a huge amount of, uh, of research, but you look all around the world. I mean, what China is essentially trying to do is undermine the United States and highlight the, the very real failings of, uh, of the United States. The United States didn't monumentally screw up in Afghanistan uh, because of China. I and mean, we did it ourselves. And we have a lot of self-inflicted wounds uh, and uh, what china is doing is uh, is both highlighting those shortcomings and seeking to amplify uh, the things that china actually does pretty well i mean we have to credit where credit's due i mean china has brought hundreds of millions of its own people out of abject poverty they've done a great job of building physical uh, hard infrastructure there are a lot of things that china does pretty well um, and uh, so that's what that's China's game, um, and and the United States needs to be cognizant of that, but also needs to be thoughtful and measured and strategic uh, and inclusive in in responding. I mean, the, it can't be the United States versus China. It has to be a coalition of people all around the world who share a positive vision of what we'd like the future to look like. And then China has a choice to either join that vision or not. And that's why, um, for example, it was so tragic when Donald Trump um, pulled the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the earliest days of his presidency, because that's what it was. It was a bunch of countries getting together and said, can we build a model of what we'd like trade 
between our countries to look like and what are the standards. Um, and then once we have that model, we'll have a lot of leverage to China to say either you meet this standard or not. And that was why I thought it was a great idea. Uh, there was a lot of pressure against it. Uh, Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, uh, during her campaign, even though uh, negotiating this had been, according to her, one of her uh, the, the things she was proudest of, had, in my view, erroneously said that she was no longer for it, and then Donald Trump withdrew. That was a huge victory for China. And so, um, yes, you know, China is trying to use your, your metaphor, you know, kicking a lot of balls at our goal, but we're also uh, kicking balls into, into our own goal, and, and we've got to change that. One thing I was thinking about to do with the popular media representation in China, let's say in their cinema, of the sort of colonialists, imperialists, like awful sort of classic Western depiction of Americans. I wonder whether that's ethically much different to how the US was portraying the classic evil Russian in a, a turtleneck and a black cap, you know, throughout the 80s, because that was part of the US's rhetoric then yeah it was i mean certainly looking at who are the bad guys and how are they portrayed is is part of just understanding how how societies function um and in many ways i think china which i mean again talk it's about shifting realities uh china is now accusing the united states of having a cold war mentality uh, but china has had a cold war mentality against uh, the united states even from the earliest, uh, the earliest days. I'm just finishing a book called The, the Long Game by Rush Doshi. And it's pretty incredible because it looks at um, the Chinese sources of how they were articulating what they were doing. And even at the height of US of efforts when the United States was saying, all right, we need to integrate China into the rules-based international order. We need to create a space for them. Um, so that and that over time their society will evolve and we can work together. And it was, I'm sure it wasn't so pure as, as that. But that's what the story that the United States leaders were, were telling ourselves. And I was in government then. But from the Chinese sources, it was like, these guys want to screw us. Um, we have to sneak in. Uh, we have to use their institutions to undermine them. I mean, really, from day one, um, according to Chinese sources, the goal was not to to integrate into a, a global system for the the mutual good. I mean, China thought that that was too beneficial to the United States, um, but to uh, simulate engagement with those institutions in order to undermine and weaken them. China is playing so much of a longer game. It would feel like than you know it is the chess versus checkers analogy. Was there a um? I feel like I, saw I think go, go go versus checkers. Go versus checkers. Yeah, yeah. Good way to good way to make it uh, ethnically appropriate. Did I see an interview where you mentioned that one of the ideas behind the U.S. enabling Chinese trade was that by raising living standards and by raising uh, bringing their population out of poverty, the presumption is that um, democracy kind of comes along for the ride that you have this educated populace, they have better living standards, and then they start to, once they've got food and water and right. heat and shelter, they start to look at these bigger questions. Uh, but what perhaps we hadn't accounted for was the power of a very authoritarian regime with technology to uh, deploy its means. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There were people like Tom Carruthers and others um, who certainly in the in the later mid to later 90s were making this argument that once people get to be around have around seven thousand dollars in in annual income, uh, they start to make demands and it forces governments to change to meet the demands of those empowered publics. And in my mind, it, it's a little bit of the arrogance on our side to feel, and it was the same thing with the Francis Fukuyama argument about the end of history. Uh, they just assume that there's just one path and we know it and we're on it. And, and we had that kind of arrogance. And, and frankly, that arrogance hurt us because we thought, well, all we need to do is help China get rich. We just need to open our systems and we just need to have an open internet um, and then the pull the structural pull of all of these is going to be so transformative that there's nothing that the Chinese government can do. Bill Clinton had a famous um, uh, line. We talked about the Chinese internet. He's trying to control the internet. He's trying to nail Jello to the wall. Good luck with that. Well, China's nailed Jello to the wall. They've done actually a, a great job. They've they've gotten rich. Uh, uh, their the average income is is above that level. Uh, and they they are they are pioneering just a different model of organization. And in many ways, it's working in some ways for the people who are living in China, as I mentioned, in different estimates, 700 million people brought out of abject poverty. When you talk about realizing the sustainable development goals, most of that work has just been done by China, not because the United Nations declared these standards or Jeffrey Sachs, um, help think think them up because the Chinese government, for its own purposes, um, was doing what it wanted to do to improve the the well-being and status of China and, and the people in in uh, in China. So um, it, it was it's, it was almost an arrogant view on our side. Um, and then, but but so I don't think that democracy, liberal democracy, um, is in any way inevitable. But if we believe in it, if we believe in the rules-based international order, um, we need to think about, well, how do we grow it? How do we grow it in an, an inclusive way? And again, I'm, I'm um, American, and I'm certainly a you know, patriotic in my way uh, American, but that doesn't mean that I think America has done everything right. We certainly did a great job of helping win two world wars and, and organize the world after the, after the second and defend it. Uh, the free world for a long time, but massive flaws, massive shortcomings, massive selfishness in terms of our our use of natural natural resources. And there's a lot to criticize on all sides. Um, and I think we need to we need to do that, and we need to articulate what's the kind of world that we'd like to live in, uh, and then try to to build the best path from here to there. Here's the thing, man. It may end up being that a modern society really struggles to flourish under a democracy that the i think about this all the time that the principles of freedom genuinely might be some sort of old and worldy hark back thing that is really really challenging to wrangle when you have technology and ubiquitous communication and all this sort of stuff now i don't disagree that it makes for a more flourishing life i think that that is how you can maximize uh, a human's uh enjoyment of their days but we're not talking about that here. We're not talking about enjoyment. We're talking about effectiveness. And it may end up being that an authoritarian regime like the CCP is so much more effective that 
without correct checks and balances, without correct sanctions, without correct um, foresight and long-term planning, that it they're so much more effective that you can't compete with them with a freedom-based society. You know, I mean, all of the time that's been spent with political infighting and divisions in the U.S., if all of that had been put toward moving in one direction as a unified front and going together, imagine how much more progress we would have made. Now, the problem that we have is because it's a democracy and because people have freedom, they are free to disagree, which causes people to take one step forward and one step back, as opposed to in China, where if you want to disagree, you just go do forced labor. Like you're, you're just unpersoned for a while. And that means that everybody is moving in the same direction. So... Yeah, I, that that really concerns me. The fact that freedom may be fundamentally incompatible with a modern, technologically advanced world when you have a CCP-like party there competing on a global scale. Yeah, so democracy is not an end in itself. It's a means to the end of good and accountable governance, and it's got to to deliver. And certainly the argument... Uh, that you just made, we've heard it before. People were making that argument with the United States and the Soviet Union, and especially in the early years, how can we compete when they're all on the same line, like moving in the same direction with North and South Korea in the early days? Uh, North Korea was it was developing faster than South Korea, and people were in South Korea were saying, well, how can we flourish with um, with democracy? So people have made that argument repeatedly. And economically, uh, when Japan was taking off, and they had their famous uh, MIDI Ministry of Industry and, and Technology. People were saying, well, how can we, with our, our messier um, economy, uh, compete with Japan? And in all of those cases, uh, democracy and open society flourish. And I still believe in, in open societies. But that doesn't mean, and connected to what I was saying before, uh, that, that, that that success um, is predetermined. We've got to make it happen, and we've got to make sure that our open societies are able to deliver, and that when we talk about open societies, they really are open societies, and that's why we need to make sure, at least here in the United States, that our democracy functions, and, and that's also why it concerns me so much when I see that elements of the Republican Party, for example, um, seem to have a strategy of disenfranchisement, of kind of trying to reduce the electorate. Um, in order uh, to achieve a, a, a different goal. And, and I'm sure there'll, there'll be listeners to this podcast who, who disagree with that. Um, but we need to make sure our democracy works. We need to make sure that people feel it works. And we need to make sure that it's, that it's delivering. I talked about China bringing 700 million people out of abject poverty. We don't have 700 million people here in the United States. Uh, but we have a lot of people who are living in abject poverty. We have a lot of people whose life prospects are way less than other people. And we can't afford to throw people away. Um, there are people now who are being born in terrible situations, slums, who have the potential to be Mozarts and Einsteins and John von Neumanns and Isaac Newtons, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, but we're not allowing those people the opportunity to contribute in the ways that we need them to. So I, I know open societies can and hopefully will win in the end, uh, but it's not an autopilot. Every person has a role to play in realizing that future. Do you think that the Chinese citizens are happy where they are? Because 
I'm always struck by the resilience and the adaptability of our systems to wherever it is that we go. And very quickly, we just become acclimatized to whatever the environment is that we're in, whether that be political, cultural, uh, the temperature that we live in, the weather that we live in, uh, as I found coming from the UK out to Texas. And I wonder what, just how differently people feel in China. You know, I mean, I, I read the other day that the Chinese government's got gate analysis technology yeah. that's 96% accurate. So this means that a, a video camera can work out who you are with a 96% accuracy without seeing your face simply by analyzing the biomechanics of how you walk. I mean, yep. that is, and then social credit system, the tracking of internet, basically no state versus business, private, all of that stuff, right? Have you got any idea about what it's like to be a Chinese citizen living over there under this sort of regime and the happiness? Well, I mean, certainly I've visited China many, many times before I was condemned by the spokesman of the Chinese foreign ministry from by name from the podium in Beijing. And so I'm not sure if I can go back now or uh. ever. Um, but um, it's hard to tell because you know, on one hand, you know, up to 50 million people are dead as a result of Mao's disastrous policies. And, and the Chinese Communist Party declares publicly all the time that they are the inheritors of Mao's legacy. And so, I mean, most everybody in China has a relative who's dead because of Mao and, and the Chinese Communist Party. Everybody recognizes that you can speak freely. But when they do opinion polls, and there's an open question of whether people are can speak freely, people have a lot of confidence in their government. Uh, people in China recognize that their uh, material uh, well-being has, on average, has massively increased compared uh, to their uh, to their parents, or certainly to their grandparents uh, who were living in in abject um, in abject poverty. So yes. Nobody, and I, I would say nobody likes to be surveilled to the extent that people are surveilled in China. China, as much as they're spending on national security, spends even more on domestic uh, security. And we see no people, way. So yes. they they outspend international yes. security spending internally. Yes, yes. that's yeah, yeah. crazy. So all, but factoring in all of those things, are Chinese people on average happier or less happy than people here in the United States? I don't know. I mean, certainly there are a lot of reasons for people in China to be happy and unhappy. And certainly there are a lot of reasons for people here in the United States to be happy and unhappy. And it sometimes feels uh, that there's a lot of energy going into amplifying unhappiness and, and anger. And that's uh, Steven Pinker, um, has been kind of the person who's who's you know, one of the people who's kind of carried this this banner. It's like, hey, let's just look at things. We're more educated, healthier, living longer than ever before. I mean, things are really just getting better. We do live in an open society where we can constantly and we do constantly throw the bums out. And and as angry as you know, people on in, on the left were about Trump, and now people are on the right are about Biden. At least, and I hope, when we have a functioning democracy, there's a, there's a feeling. Well, I'm going to fight for it. But by fight, if fight means <clears throat> that we're going to go attack the Capitol and smash the window and try to hang the vice president, like that's that's what it looks like in in banana republics um, where. You have you know, forced coups or people manipulate the structures 
of the electoral system and and the, uh, no and people don't feel that governance is legitimate. So long way of saying, I believe in open societies. If we want to keep ours, we have to invest in it because every morning that we wake up here in the United States, um, that's the new record for the longest democracy in human history. Longest, and so we don't know how long democracies can uh, can survive. Maybe there's some. We'll learn in a thousand years. There's an inherent rule of democracies that they can only last 300 years, and it happens over and over. Or maybe we'll learn that democracy as a form uh, can really succeed, but it'll have to rejuvenate itself. Talk to me about this tennis player that just got disappeared in China. Yeah. So uh, Peng Shui is a is a very famous uh, uh, Chinese tennis player. She's been in three Olympics and a real superstar. <clears throat> she then put out a message on uh, on social media, essentially uh, or accusing uh, somebody who had actually had been her, her off and on lover for a decade, but who is a, a very, very senior uh, Chinese uh, official of sexual assault. Um, and then she disappeared. Um, and so there, there's been a big international outcry. Uh, more recently, there was a call set up uh, between her and the head of the International Olympic Committee, which didn't really really resolve anything. So here's how I, I see that issue. Um, uh, it's a big deal in China for a high profile celebrity um, to make any kind of public claim that's not aligned with government interests, let alone uh, to accuse a member of the, a former member of the Chinese Politburo of a, a sexual assault. Um, from the Chinese government perspective, I think the reason why they moved so aggressively to squash her and her message is I think they're afraid of a Me Too movement in China. Because in China, um, like in many other countries, I can give you a 100% guarantee that many senior members of the Chinese Communist Party have assaulted women over time and abused their power. There's a 100% chance of that. It's not just in China, it happens in countries all around, uh, all around, uh, around the world. If there were a Me Too movement, as happened in the United States, in France, and in many other places, um, the Chinese government fears that that uh, could get out of hand. And it's exactly why with uh, Falun Gong, which is kind of like a spiritual yoga club, and China attacked them and has imprisoned and killed many members of, uh, of Falun Gong, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is afraid of any kind of social organization not sanctioned by them. And they're afraid of any person uh, getting the ability to deliver a message contrary um, to the message of the Chinese Communist Party. So that's why Jack Ma, the richest man in China, he criticizes the Chinese government and he vanishes. Fan Bingbing, who's one of the lead actresses, uh, is accused of of not playing by the rules, he disappears and has to come back uh, much later groveling and asking for uh, forgiveness. We've seen this story over and over and over. And the theme of it is the Chinese Communist Party will do anything uh, to control its narrative. And that's the connection with the COVID origin. I mean, they have their story. They'll do whatever it takes to defend their story. And that's why with, with Peng Shui, they're willing to crack down. They don't want to lose the Olympics, uh, but it's great that there are people like Inez 
Cantor of the Boston Celtics, who are who are raising really important questions and and challenging China. And on COVID origins, that's why we have to demand a full investigation, just like we have to demand uh, that China uh, be uh, that if they want to host the Olympics, um, if they want uh, to get this opportunity to be part of the international community, it comes with obligations. And that's why more broadly, um, I've called uh, for every media organization that's covering the Olympics to spend 25% of their full media time covering issues of uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, South China Sea, human rights in China. Every corporate sponsor uh, that's spending on the, the, uh, the Beijing uh, Olympics should spend 10% of its full spend supporting the victims of these atrocities, and whether they're Tibetans, Uyghurs, or uh, investing in, in supporting uh, organizations fighting for democracy in Hong Kong and many other situations. It is crazy that China can be a part of a global movement, which is the Olympics sport. It's the Winter Olympics they've got next year, right? Yes. And, um, and yet not play by the rules that the rest of the world adheres to or says is fair. There is something... Yeah, there's something icky about the entire China situation, which I guess is that we require them to keep the capitalist machine moving forward. There is also perverse incentives, people being monetized. You saw that ridiculous turnaround. Who was that wrestler that gave the... Um, oh, my God. Um, John Cena. John Cena. It was. I actually tweeted against him. I mean, it is... Let me just use this opportunity to condemn John Cena. John Cena, if you're listening to this podcast, you are a scoundrel. You're supposed to be a tough guy. That's your entire brand. And China criticizes you and you get on your hands and knees and bark like a dog. Show some backbone. Talk to Inez Cantor. That's what courage looks like. Standing up for things, standing up for people and standing up for human rights. And I challenge you, John Cena, to come on this podcast with me and let's have the conversation about China. If you think that the Chinese Communist Party is doing such a great job, if they are supporting human rights so much that you'll do everything you can to support them, come and, and make that case and let's have a conversation. You heard it, John Cena. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, man, it's so, it's, it makes me feel so icky. It makes me feel so uncomfortable, generally, the, the, the whole situation around China. Going back to uh, Peng Shui and the other people that kind of get disappeared for a while, what do you think happens? Do you think, I mean, are they being taken away and tortured? Are they being no, taken no, no. away and what is it that, that Not that taken away and so, so the Chinese government is very sophisticated. I don't think that Peng Shui or Jack Ma or Fan Binbing, none of them were, uh, were tortured. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm certain of it. But the Chinese government has a lot of levers over people like that. They can destroy their lives. Uh, they can imprison their relatives. They can take away their means of making a living, of communicating um, with, their, uh, with their fans. So they, they really have a lot of, uh, of leverage. And they're fully willing to use that leverage when they feel it's it's necessary, including against other members of the Chinese uh, Communist Party um, who get on on the wrong side, um, like, uh, uh, well, I mean, like many of, of them. 
And so that's what they're that's what they're doing. And that's frankly why uh, the many scientists who I believe almost certainly have a lot of relevant information of the origins of the pandemic, they don't dare speak. I mean, certainly they've been threatened by the Chinese government. There are laws preventing them from speaking. Um, but if they speak, even if they make a run for it and and get outside of the country and speak, uh, their families will be in very significant danger. So this, this is a, a very thorough control mechanism. When you saw the first photos of Peng Shui and she was surrounded by animals, people yep. can Google this if they want to try and see it. I think she posted it on WeChat, which is kind of like right. Ch Chinese Facebook. And um, it's the most sinister looking room for somebody that's been missing for a long time to arrive in is all of these weird children's toys on a yeah. shelf behind her. And then there's a selfie of her holding one of them. It's the proper horror movie shit. And so I have no idea whether that's actually her room or it's a, it's a, it's a movie set. But regardless, let's just say that that is her room. Let's, we'll give China the benefit of the doubt. Some crew from the Chinese propaganda department came there and set up that There's a photo shot. shoot with you and exactly. all so of your soft toys. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just sinister and it's gross. And we have to be honest about it. We have to condemn it. And we have to hold China accountable. Did you see this new ruling that they've brought in to do with video games for teenagers? No. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. No, I, uh, no, I, did, I did see that. I yeah. did see that. And, it, and so what, what I will say is that China looks at other countries around the region and around the world, like and we'll use Korea as an example, and then says, well, here's what we would like to be like, and here's what we don't want to be like. And so we don't want... Um, according to China, is a bunch of kids spending their life playing video games. And we don't want a bunch of young people modeling themselves after what, what we, from a Chinese perspective, uh, see as effeminate uh, Korean movie stars. And so what China does is pass rules. This is the way it should be. Men should act like men. Kids should not watch video games. And, and you know, every parent in the world faces this kind of thing. Like when your kid is on playing video games or on social media all day, or they you know, start wearing funky clothes or whatever, every parent says, well, maybe we should have a rule. And I just think that with China, their whole thing is everything. I mean, it's a, it's a country largely ruled by engineers. They have an engineering, their government has an engineering philosophy of life, social engineering, environmental engineering, the Three Gorges Dam and the south to north water diversion project and all of these other things, everything can be engineered according to them. And again, that's why those of us who believe in open societies, and I do, we just need to really invest our energy in making sure that our open societies can function. What does this masculinizing, this manlying of the Chinese population look like? They're just trying to create a, a breed of alpha, alpha males walking around. What's going on there? You know, it looks like it. I mean, when you, so I, I think it's a contrast. What they're trying to do is contrast to at least their perception of Korean and, and Japanese men. Um, and there's just a, a popular kind of way of looking for uh, Korean movie, <clears throat> movie stars, male movie stars uh, in K-pop um, that I think China has a lot of disdain for in Japan, which had kind of an overemphasized vision of kind of aggressive masculinity in the 30s and the first first half of the 40s 
now there's a there's a popular model. I can't remember the exact word, but it's something like vegetarian men who are these who are perceived <laughs> and I would love to vegetarian who are perceived as these kind of wimpy men who, yeah. who go to these uh, these uh, whatever whatever they're called mistress cafes or or, or whatever and remain virgins until they're 600 years old or whatever, whatever the, the stereotype is. And I think China is trying to say, well, that's not what we want. I mean, our model are, are these, you know, rugged um, uh, people, rugged uh, founders of the state who were engaged in the long march. And again, because China's history, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's history is in many ways a fabrication. Um, they have to overinvest in that fabrication. I mean, that's why China every year uh, they have these uh, massive uh, World War II victory parades. Um, and it's true that that Chinese people fought in the Second World War, uh, but the Chinese Communist Party played a very minimal role in fighting the Japanese. Hang, hang on, Jamie, fact, roll, it, they- roll it back for a second. <clears throat> China has a World War II victory party every year yes what the fuck it's a commemoration no no well i mean lots of countries do that i mean the united states has it but the thing is the chinese entity that spent a lot of its time and energy fighting the japanese was the government under the nationalists of chiang kai-shek the communists under mao hardly fought the japanese and what their mission was to was to maintain uh, their power so they could fight the communists, which they did, particularly after the, the Second World War. So it's preposterous that the Chinese Communist Party is celebrating this victory over the Japanese, that they didn't play a significant role in in bringing about. But again, it's this point where China has this kind of imaginary view and then they work uh, to to try to make it real again. Like when China, when the Chinese Communist Party talks about, well, China has this ancient civilization, which is absolutely true. Um, but they hardly mention that during the Cultural uh, Revolution, uh, China was destroying its own history. It was burning and destroying its own manuscripts, smashing its greatest art, um, and 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 so in many ways, and then murdering uh, so many people representing. Uh, the older uh, the older systems. And so in some ways, China is really a startup nation. Uh, and there are benefits to being a, a, a startup nation. But again, China has these fake mythologies, and then the government just invests enormous resources into turning these fabrications into things that people feel are real. And maybe every country does that, but China does it at an industrial scale. Isn't there a concern about if China was to invade Taiwan that there's quite a lot of Chinese historical artifacts, museums uh, that would then be part of this destruction? Is that right? I don't know if they'd be part of this destruction, but um, when Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists uh, retreated to Taiwan in 1949 after they'd lost the, the Chinese Civil War, they took the treasures, the greatest treasures, of Chinese civilization with them, which are now part of this incredible museum in uh, in Taipei. Have you been? Um, I have been. It's it's spectacular, and um, and so China, which again under Mao destroyed its own history. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff that was left 
and and the again the manuscripts were were uh, burned the the treasures of art were smashed uh, the the people who carried those cultural legacies were ostracized or or even killed um, and so yeah absolutely so China is now claiming all of those artworks and masterpieces from Taiwan ironically if if the Chiang Kai Shek and lots of problems with Chiang Kai Shek and the national hadn't taken those masterpieces with them. Uh, most of them would certainly have been destroyed. Fuck, man. I don't know. It's um. Roll the clock forward for me, then. Roll the clock forward over the next sort of ten to twenty years. I know that you're not able to bring out your clairvoyant crystals or see, s- see what's happening. I have a little of it. What do you yeah, re- yeah. What do you reckon is going to happen? So I don't know what's going to happen, but there are there are some different options. Um, <clears throat> And there's some bad options and there are some good options. Here's a bad option. Uh, China continues its efforts to undermine the rules-based international order. Uh, The rest of the world doesn't do a sufficient job of fighting back and standing up for the principles that we believe in, including by making our own societies stronger uh, and better. And we live in a world um, that looks much more like uh, history. Uh, where there is a, a kind of a central power, a colonial power uh, that's exerting its influence over uh, over everybody uh, everybody else. We've seen this story over and over. The British did it, the Mongols did it, the Romans did it. And that doesn't mean it's all terrible, um, but it means it undermines this, again, this post-war liberal international order that I actually believe in. So that's one. There's another uh, uh, story where the rest of the world really reinvests in, op- in our open societies. Um, we come together, we exert a lot of influence, and we have enough pressure and influence and unity to give a message to China. You have two options, either to play a more constructive role in the world, or you're just going to be more and more isolated, even though you're, you're a big country. And then China has a, a strategic choice. There's a third option, um, which is a very real uh, possibility, which is war. I think war and military conflict is uh, is on the horizon. You can't have countries building all of the tools for a massive world war and just assume it's never going to happen. We're 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 moving in that uh, in that uh, in that direction. And then there's the fourth, and it's the utopian uh, one shared world uh, view is that. We all realize that that there's just a better way to do things. Um, that our human society has evolved, and that we that uh, we need to find a way to balance our narrower interests as citizens of single countries and consumers of products made by single corporations, and our broader interests as humans sharing the same planet, where our fates, as the pandemic and climate change and other things have showed us are so intimately intertwined. Um, so I don't think that's gonna happen in 10 or, or, or 20 years, but I certainly hope, and that's why I and we founded uh, One Shared World, that there's just a lot of energy of existing movements like the Greta Thunberg and the climate movement and all sorts of movements. And we think there's a unifying principle, uh, which is a recognition of the mutual re- responsibilities of our deep global interdependence. And that if we can all, all of these groups and all these people around the world rally behind those principles, if we can create a strong enough magnetic field um, to draw 
people in China who are wonderful people. I think everybody in, in China, uh, most everybody in China would like to be part of the world in a constructive way. There's just an issue of, of governance and government. Then I think that that's a, a more utopian version. It's going to be harder to achieve, but if we don't articulate um, where we'd like to be, we'll never get there. I mean, uh, Henry David Thoreau has a quote that I use all the time, and embarrassingly, it was in my high school yearbook in Kansas City, uh, which is, uh, if you've were if you've built castles in the sky, uh, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now build the foundations under them. Where should people go? They want to read more about the work that you do. Oh, so I hope they'll go to my website, jamiemetzel.com, J-A-M-I-E-M-E-T-Z-L.com. There, there's links to, I have, a, if you print it out, it's 50 pages on pandemic origins. Uh, I've written five books and you can learn about them there. My most recent is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the uh, and the Future of, uh, of Humanity. But what I uh, you can I had a, a short story, a, a visit to Weizenbaum that was made into a film, and you can watch that short film. It's only 15 minutes on my uh, on my website. But uh, jamiemetzel.com is the key to everything else. Jamie Metzel, ladies and gentlemen. Jamie, thank you so much for today. It's been awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Really my pleasure.